Our special guest today on the Kansas Reflector podcast is Attorney General Chris Kobach. He requires no introduction. Mr. Attorney General, welcome. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for taking time. So have you gotten used to the idea of wearing the spurs of the Kansas Attorney General, the top law enforcement officer in the state? I have, and I'm really enjoying the job. In fact, uh, one of the things that a former attorney general, uh, actually a former attorney general of Nebraska told me is that this will be the best job of your life. And he told me that shortly after I was elected, and it looks like it really might be. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I know you you endured a difficult campaign for governor, but I'm just really kind of curious if if you think maybe being AG is a better fit. I, I do think it's a better fit. Um, it. You know, if you think about for me as an attorney, I, you know, I really enjoy constitutional cases. I used to be a constitutional law professor. I enjoy the the meaty issues uh, that I care about. And, you know, I think obviously being governor is a huge honor and a very important position. Um, But I think I am more excited, you know, getting out of bed in the morning to do some of the things and litigate some of these issues that the attorney general gets to do than, say, some of the minutiae that the governor has to do every day. So it, it interests me and I enjoy the job. Some would suggest being governor is kind of a thankless position. It's a difficult job for sure. Oh, absolutely. But all these are, all yeah. these state government, Congress, whatever. So let's get to your agenda. You asked for, I think, about a million dollars to hire some prosecutors. What's the status of the staff issue? Did you get your money? Uh, yes. Uh, the legislature came through uh, with the money and we are starting hiring. Uh, and we, We've hired several attorneys already. Um, I went to the legislature and, you know, basically said, hey, we've got an emergency here, guys. We, you know, we normally, when we're fully staffed, we have 10 prosecutors. And of course, we have many more attorneys than that, but uh, specifically in the criminal division. And we were down to three. Um, And it had been gradual attrition. And it it wasn't, you know, Derek Schmidt's fault or anything like that. It was just kind of the economics of being an attorney. And, you know, over time, the Kansas Attorney General's office was paying prosecutors less than the surrounding state's attorney general's offices mm-hmm. and less than the larger counties in campus, Kansas. So we were losing prosecutors to, you know, county attorney offices in, around the state who, who could pay them a whole lot more, you know, $20,000 more. And so you know, we, we pointed out that, look, we... In, in, the attorney hiring world is very competitive and we have a shortage and we needed to be able to just bump up our salaries so that we can offer people something comparable to what Missouri offers them or right. offer them something comparable to what Johnson County offers them. And the legislature thankfully uh, gave us that little boost in funding. So we they were, give you what you asked for. Yeah, they did. Okay, so, and where are you at in terms of these prosecutors? Because you know, they we could are, be overburdened have, three. Oh, yeah. Doing yeah. three times. We, the amount we've of already we've already hired one. And I think we've got one or two more in the pipeline okay. so and, and it made a difference being able to offer that a little mm-hmm. bit more you know how it is i mean you've got you're choosing between two jobs and one job pays you twenty thousand dollars more yeah you're probably going to lean toward the, the job in journalism nobody gets paid <laughs> so uh you recently lauded the legislature for passing a bill eliminating the hundred dollar fee that kansans would pay to get a concealed carry permit kansans don't need a permit training or to have uh it's, there's no prerequisite for carrying concealed but some people want want that permit maybe it's the reciprocal element of other states um so 
So is this a good idea? Yeah, it was my idea. Uh, and <laughs> I, 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 we wrote the bill and, or proposed the bill. It wasn't really much of a drafting challenge because you're just eliminating a fee. Um, but yeah, that was one of the uh, five legislative priorities I announced at the beginning of the legislative session. And the reason I wanted to do this, is, there are two reasons. One is principled and one is practical. The principled reason is I don't think you should have to pay the state a fee to exercise a constitutional right. We shouldn't have to pay a fee to exercise our First Amendment rights right here, right now. We should have to pay a fee to go to church on Sunday. And I don't think you should have to pay a fee to exercise. Was concealed carry a constitutional right? The I, right to I bear believe, arms is. Yeah. You know, I believe it is because the way people bear arms in the 21st century is concealed. Now, to, you know, 200 years ago, 150 years ago, it might've been different, but the, the, the the general acceptable way to bear arms is concealed these days. Okay. Um, so I think to meaningfully uh, bear arms as opposed to keeping arms, uh, you would allow people to conceal carry. Um, and the practical reason is that, you know, we got, we, we moved to constitutional carry a few years ago, which mm-hmm. means that you don't need a permit if mm-hmm. you're over 21 to conceal carry in Kansas. But that resulted in some people, not surprisingly, going ahead and concealed carrying without ever taking the course, without ever getting the permit. And so by removing the fee, we make it more attractive for people to get the training and get the permit. That $100 is a significant disincentive. Mm-hmm. And I am, and that's one of the reasons why several Democrats jumped on board and voted for this bill for that exact reason, that they wanted to encourage more people to get the permit and take the class. And I think that's what we're going to see. Well, the proof will be in the pudding a year from now. We can see if the number of people requesting, uh, seeking permits has gone up on an annual basis. Uh, but I think it will. I think it's almost certain to do so. Legislature overrode Governor Laura Kelly's veto of a bill requiring girls and women to participate in sports based on their gender at birth. Why would Republicans such as yourself bring the big hand of government into this equation? Um, and do you think this this legislate this this law now faces a constitutional well, challenge? Well, the big hand of government was already here. The Kansas schools are uh, local entities of government, so the schools define who gets to compete in the track meet and who gets to compete in whatever sport. And so there were already rules enforced by the government, if you want to call it that way. Uh, but you know. Every sport has rules, right? That's why that's mm-hmm. how we make sports fair. If you didn't have any rules of basketball and you said, okay, here's the ball, go, um, it would be a very unfair game. And so these rules define the elements of fairness. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is it's, I think that the trans athlete participating in girls' sports threatens the fairness of the sport. And I don't think that's something that is very difficult to prove at all. Look at what Leah Thomas did in, in uh, women's collegiate swimming, where Thomas just blew apart all these records, won the national championship. And you can see it on a more local, you see it happening on a more local level, you know, imagining especially sports like track. Um, I'm the father of five daughters. My girls are involved in girls sports. I have become a huge fan of girls sports. And I know, to take the example of my second daughter, who's doing really well in cross country and in track in the mile, um, she just earlier this week got second place uh, at a tournament, in a, a track meet uh, in the mile event. And I'm so you know, incredibly proud of her. But if a biological male had been competing, it is 
very likely that that person would have taken first and my daughter would have gotten third place and not second place. And I think it would be unfair to every girl to allow someone who has a physical advantage to come in and uh, and, and win those tournaments, win, win those track meets, and even more importantly, win those scholarships, mm-hmm. uh, which is, remember, why other states co- have done this kind of thing. But what about a constitutional challenge on this? Um, you know, I, we've heard uh, some rumblings. That I believe the ACLU has told some reporters that they're thinking about or maybe planning on bringing a constitutional challenge. Uh, uh, if, if they want to, uh, my answer is go ahead and bring it. I, I think it we'll wouldn't be the first time you've run into the ACLU. It would and, not be the first time. And I think I feel very confident that this law will survive a constitutional challenge. Your legislative agenda included a recommendation for a new criminal sentencing enhancement for distribution of drugs causing a death. I think this is really related to fentanyl, yes. where all the street drugs and the fake pharmaceuticals, yeah. counterfeit pharmaceuticals have fentanyl in it. Uh, so you get, is that in the works in the state house? Uh, yes. And we're, I, that's part of a larger crime bill that is on the okay. governor's desk right now. That was another one of my priorities that I announced, mm-hmm. uh, was, was increasing the penalties for, uh, for dealing fentanyl. And, uh, I think it's likely that she'll sign it. We'll see, uh, we, time okay. will tell. Um, I, I haven't heard any opposition from the governor's office on these, these criminal issues. So, uh, yeah. I haven't either. There's another piece that maybe goes along with that. You're interested in having some more AG authority in relate, relation to these um, kind of criminal gangs that will go into big retail stores and just fill a shopping cart with TVs and roll out because the store managers don't want a crazy violent episode. It's it's better for people to just let them have the TVs. But the idea was that you would have some prosecutorial authority to step in. What about yeah. that? So organized retail crime is, if you, if, you, if you Google it or look at the numbers statistically, it has just exploded in America in terms of the amount of, of activity in the, in, the, in the millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars that are being stolen every year uh, from these big box stores. You know, they'll go into a Home Depot and they'll fill their uh, shopping cart with all the most expensive items. And then they, they push right out and that they're called push outs. It's, it's a hmm. new term uh, because and, and then they unload it into the van and the, the, the goods into the van. They move down to the next store. And these typically are done, you know, across county lines, even across state lines. So you're talking about, you know, five, six, ten stores being hit in a day. And it's not easy for a, you know, a, a single county prosecutor to take that big case and do the massive amount of, you know, because you're, you're talking about investigations in multiple counties for multiple stores. It's a national problem. The scale is just immense. And, and get this, both Kansas and Missouri are both in the top 10 states of dollars being stolen through organized retail crime. So it's a problem here. And the bill simply allows the attorney general's office original prosecutorial authority. We uh, handle appeals for just about every criminal case in the state. And traditionally, if there's a, a criminal case, you might be invited in and by the county we're, attorney. Normally, or we're DA. invited in. In yes. this sense, if it's multi counties, then you would just then have, we would just say, that's okay, what you we'll, mean by original jurisdiction. Exactly. We would say, okay, we'll go ahead and prosecute this. The counties still have the authority, but mm-hmm. it, you know, generally, in a in a big multi county case like that, it's unlikely that one county is going to step forward and say, okay, we'll we'll carry the load. And here's a question about ESG, which is the when you have. Uh, organizations that focus on environmental, social, or corporate governance issues in terms of making recommendations about investment strategies. So there's Kansas, maybe you're interested in a law that would require state investments in Kansas. Think about capers and, mm-hmm. and pension fund investments. Right. To make those investments solely the based on the fiduciary idea of making the most money. Right. So how does that blend with GOP calls for ban on investments in Russia and China, which is completely politically oriented, right? 
Do you know what I mean? Yep. No, I hear what you're saying. Well, first of all, I should because say... Because there's people that want to ban investments in China, but at the same time, we shouldn't be involved in political uh, having a political agenda on corporate investment. Well, the a couple of things. One is I, I should note that ESG, passing an ESG bill was one of my five legislative priorities that, that we announced at the beginning of the session as well. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the governor will sign this. Uh, we'll see soon enough. Um, the... To answer your question, I think there's a difference. I mean, the, the ESG um, movement right now is, you know, you have these large firms that are scoring companies based on, um, you know, are they environmentally clean enough? Are they, uh, do they have the right social, are they woke enough? Do they have the right social uh, positions on all of these issues that have nothing to do with whatever industry the company is in? And they're they're forcing companies to take, the, the objective is to force companies to take positions on political issues, and they're they're using um, the massive influence of large investment houses and state pension funds, which you know, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, mm-hmm. uh, to try to push these corporations in an ideological direction. That I think is is objectionable be- for a number of reasons, but most importantly because you're um, you're taking pension or you're taking Kansas employees' dollars and you're not trying to get the maximum return on them mm-hmm. now. The, it's a little different with the um, investing in China or, you know, investing in Russia. You're taking there a, a country that is the enemy of the United States or adversary of the United States, you know, however you want to define it. And you're 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 assisting them in, against the national interests of the United States. So I, I I see the you're right. There is a similarity. There's a political element to the investment decision. But I think, you know, Russia and China is a very different thing where you're talking about the national security of the United States, where presumably we all agree on that, whether we're Republican, Democrat, right or left versus, um, you know, do you want to use pensioners investment dollars to, to push a, an agenda? So I think the way I would answer your question is, look, if there were some um, ESG in reverse where um, Kansans were saying we want uh, capers money to be or Kansas legislators were saying we want capers money to be invested in uh, oil companies uh, above other companies and gun companies above other companies and mm-hmm. we don't want any investment in green energy we don't want an investment in, in Tesla or anything like that I would be equally I would equally object to that you we would sh- I would okay. because we shouldn't use so better the people in the capital that would there, not there might be some people who disagree with me yeah. but I, I just think that when you're investing Investing the Kansas workers' money to fund their pensions so uh-huh. they can retire and not have to be moved, kicked out of their home because they can't afford the taxes or whatever. We shouldn't just get the maximum return. The linkage is the public money. You're, the the state is holding public retirement money. The yeah. state is making con, signing contracts and spending public money. Right. So that's and, the and linkage. It, that is the linkage, and the, it should just be for the maximum return on investment, mm-hmm. without concern for ideological factors either way. So I want to know you're about you. You're in charge of uh, Kansas Open Records Act, Kansas Open Meetings Act. You know concerns and violations of that. I think your office takes a look at those. Uh, I would have to say uh, my personal opinion is that uh, there's been some soft peddling of those kind of violations in the past. We've got all the city and county people, good, hardworking folks who are in, in county government. Can you imagine that three county commissioners meeting for, at the coffee shop and, and talking about things? That's problematic. 
So I'm looking to you to see what your views are about the AG's office taking a strong position on enforcing our current laws. Uh, I, I am a firm believer in the Open Records Act and the Open Meetings Act. And I say that as somebody who's, you know, my first wade into politics 24 years ago was as an Overland Park City Councilman. And I, I know the temptation that exists for city governments to say, you know what, let's not talk about this in public. It would be much easier for all of the, the council members to just, you know, talk about this in private. And, and that's not how our system is supposed to work. They're, the people have a right to see the meetings, to be present in the meetings, and see the decisions being made, and to make their case to the council members. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I believe in it. Now, the the one thing I should mention is that the way Kansas law defines the attorney general's role is we kind of have two roles. We um, we we police the area. So if there is a, an objection to what some county is doing or what some city is doing, the complaint may come to the attorney general's office and, and we may be asked to weigh in. But on the other hand, if the state, if a state agency is sued for an open records or an open meeting violation, we also have to serve as the state's attorney. Mm. And so we may have to defend them even though perhaps we would have advised them to do something different at the mm-hmm. time. So we, so people shouldn't be confused that, oh, look, Kobach is defending the state agency against an Open Records Act violation. We have to. Yeah. We're the kind of have attorney. a dual role. Just, yeah. We you could create role. another separate agency, I guess, inspector general or something. One of the elements of this is that has troubled me is that we'll say the Topeka Capital Journal makes a request of a certain agency, and the agency's really not wild about turning over those documents. They're kind of, kind of embarrassing. So they say, yeah, we can give those to you. It's $4,800. I've seen it the last 10, 15 mm-hmm. years. Different mm-hmm. agencies, different organizations, and they're charging these exorbitant fees, which they don't have to charge anything. There's nothing in the law that says they have to charge a penny, but they charge these high fees to deter uh, access to public records. Yeah, and that's if they're doing it to deter access. Then well, how do you prove that? Right. I mean, they're going to claim, oh, that's just our staffing costs. Yeah, and and it's, I, I mean, I can, it certainly can be abused because there's no question there are costs, right? If you take mm-hmm. someone, if you're talking about you know thousands of pages, you're going to take someone and you're going to make him or her spend a lot of time in front of the copy machine for several days, probably sifting through documents. So there is a cost. Uh, but on the other hand, if there, if some agency, you know, we're talking hypothetically here, if some agency says, yeah, that's going to cost you $10,000 and, you know, and they just sort of pull these numbers out of thin air. That's the other thing is the agency has to give an accurate estimate. The a- agency has to figure, OK, this is really how much it's going to cost for us to do this. And I and I do not doubt that there are probably some times when agencies will say, you know, they'll pull a number out of thin air and that number sure doesn't yeah. seem realistic. So we've had some more mass shootings. I know you're a big fan of the Second Amendment, but I I just don't know what the answer is. You know, we don't allow bazookas. We don't allow people to have RPGs in the neighborhood uh, to celebrate July 4th because they're too dangerous. They're too lethal. They're it's it's war. It's a war weapon. So what about these? And I and I'm just using this label of a gun because I can't think of another AR-15s. I know there's a lot of different weapons out there, but these AR-15s are sort of a gun of choice of people who want to go in and shoot five of their former employee, you know, their where they used to work colleagues, and then take pot shots at the cops until they gun them down. You know, it's sort of like suicide by cop, but you take money. So I. 
how can we how how do you suggest as a big advocate of the Second Amendment that we get at this major problem? So I would say, first of all, that the um, the AR platform rifle. I mean, I think a lot of people look at that and they say, oh, that looks like a military rifle. Well, yeah, it does. And so does the um, the, the deer rifle, your grandpa's deer rifle look like the military rifle of the Second World War. It's mm. just the standard rifle platform. What makes it a what would make it a military rifle is, is if it were fully automatic. But of mm-hmm. course, those are illegal, and and that's not the gun that you know millions of Americans now own. So I, I think people should. Um, there, there's no question that there is a huge problem in this country with mass shootings. But I think by focusing on that rifle, uh, they're they're focusing on the wrong thing. And, and secondly, I would say the U.S. Department of Justice um, Bureau of Crime Statistics has been compiling they did a major report on this very issue and they looked at the percentage i think they defined a mass shooting as either four or five victims and they seen four plus yeah i think that's what it was and they looked at all the um the shootings over a huge span of years i can't remember maybe 10 or 20 years Mm -hmm. and they said that the ar platform rifle was only used in it was in the teens like you know between 10 and 20 percent by far the more likely uh firearm was your standard semi-automatic uh handgun. And so I think just by focusing on that rifle, which has become kind of an ideological cause celeb, right? Yeah, I didn't mean to. It's just because I'm not very familiar with the terminology. I just think there's a lot of mass shootings that certainly we got to figure it out. Yeah. Somebody has to figure this out instead of just throwing up your hands because the Constitution says anybody has the right to bear arms. Does that mean they have the right to go slaughter a bunch of their employees, their, their colleagues? And of course, it is illegal to, you know, murder is I illegal. I know, I know, but that doesn't make the dead people feel better. No, no, but I think, you know, one thing I believe, it, and I, you know, it, it may sound like a slogan, but it is a, it is a fact, and that is in every one of these cases— the thing that stops the bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, whether it's the police arriving or whether it's, uh, you know, an armed uh, citizen who has a concealed carry permit or is in a concealed carry state, a constitutional carry state. Some some good guy has to stop this crazed killer who's got a firearm at the end of the day you know pleading with him is probably not going to work it's going to have to be meeting force with force and so i do think that uh, to the extent that that people who are willing to defend others are able to carry in these locations that that's Mm -hmm. that's good for all of us because you know i if i'm in a situation where there's a guy who walks into this whatever it is shop bank, whatever, and starts shooting people, I hope there's somebody, there's some good guy somewhere who's got a gun. Because even if he doesn't, you know, does isn't such an amazing aim that he's able to immediately stop the attacker, it forces the attacker to turn his attention to the, the, the person that's threatening him. And it saves innocent lives. So I, I believe that, that allowing good guys with guns to have opportunities to defend themselves and others is has to be part of the equation. All right. Uh, so August 2020, as you well know, majority Kansans reject a proposed amendment to the Kansas Constitution. It was based on a Kansas Supreme Court decision to declare that they found language in the Bill of Rights that said there was a bodily autonomy, and that included the women's right to end a pregnancy. I presume you voted for the amendment. I did. Yeah. Uh, my question is, why would the House and Senate members and other politically active people try to thwart the will of the people, which is just to say, we think abortion should be legal, 
and regulated to really come back in 2023, less than a year later, and push a huge host of, of anti-abortion legislation. Why is that? Well, I would say a couple of things. One is the, the, the amendment that was on the ballot in 2022. You know, I, I think probably everybody would agree, people who voted for it and voted against it would say it was kind of a word salad. It was this long, wordy, legislative-sounding amendment that talked about all kinds of things, got into exceptions, got into yeah. f- funding, government funding. It was, it was a train wreck written by anti-abortion legislators. I, I think it was not well written. And as a result, I think it's very difficult for us looking at it after the fact to say, this is what the voters meant. Because you could look, I know from a fact, explaining it to people when, you know, at the time when it was, uh, you know, during that voting period, uh, what was in it, there were all kinds of people who had no clue. People I think of as, you know, pretty well-informed people who were trying to figure out what the amendment meant. So Should I think, we trust the voters to understand complicated issues? Well, you, I think we absolutely should. Uh, I mean, our, our system, not 49 of 50 states require the voters to ratify any constitutional amendment to their state. I think the only stand, uh, state that doesn't is Delaware. Okay. And, you know, I think that's a good thing because when you're changing the Constitution, you're changing yeah. the, the basic law, the foundational law of we the people of Kansas. So I, I think we need to inform voters. And I think the best way to inform voters is to start with simple language. And that amendment, so to your question, I don't think we can draw conclusions and say the voters of Kansas meant this. Like some people who are very much, uh, you know, on the far extreme of the pro-choice side will say, oh, that the people of Kansas are overwhelmingly in favor of abortion with no restrictions at all <laughs> or or with very few restrictions. And I don't think you can draw that conclusion because they the anti-campaign had, had made a concerted and effective effort to say, well, this is going to result in the banning of abortions in Kansas. And so many voters may have voted <laughs> no, saying, well, I don't want a complete ban. I want reasonable restrictions, but not a complete ban. So, uh, you know, bottom line, I think that the, the bill that did pass, which was the Born Alive Protection Act, mm-hmm. which simply says that if uh, an abortion does not succeed in killing the unborn and the the, the baby is born, that the doctors and the people there have a duty to uh, keep that baby alive once once or it try. has been delivered. Or try. Yeah, try to. Right. So I, I think that's a reasonable law. I, I And I also think that that law stands a very good chance, even with the Supreme Court's, Kansas Supreme Court's 2019 precedent of, of surviving any challenge. Yeah. Okay, let's skip to, uh, there was a recent Kansas Court of Appeals opinion looking at another constitutional right. It was about verifying signatures on advanced ballots. And then there was another Kansas law that limits uh, the number of advanced ballots a person could collect from, say, homebound people and then drive over to the election mm-hmm. office and dump it. So uh, there was a suggestion that, that this was... Um, these two bill, these two laws were problematic. I think you disagree. I completely disagree. So maybe fact, you can just kind of explain what the just yeah, briefly no, I about mean, what I was, those, those I, I was involved in, uh, in in advocate when I was Secretary of State and advocating for uh, signature requirements. And subsequently, there's a second uh, tranche of le- legislation where the signature requirement was added. Um, uh, on the on the back end. So when I was Secretary of State, we put the signature on the front end where you request the absentee ballot. Mm-hmm. And and then subsequently, I helped the legislators draft a, an addition that says when the ballot comes back to the county election office, you have to verify. So the part signature. of that is the issue of you have <clears throat> laymen looking at signatures and deciding whether or not they match or not. Right. And that's not rocket science. I mean, you know, to be to be sure. And it, but the point is, the the court the that struck down those uh, two requirements, as well as the ten ballot maximum and the number of ballots mm-hmm. you can deliver, uh, 
I think their legal reasoning was really poor. I mean, they were arguing that the that having the the county verify your signature to ensure that your ballot is not being stolen or being used by somebody else, that 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 somehow impairs your right to vote. No, on the contrary, it protects your right to vote. And before I became secretary of state, so we're talking back in 2008. Uh, in that period, Wyandotte County had had a huge problem with um, large numbers of advanced ballots being falsely requested by someone hmm. who either was trying to intercept them at the mailbox or whatever, because that they knew about this because people said um, my, my advanced ballot was delivered to me. I didn't request it. And so there were clearly schemes underway to try to get you know, either intercept their ballots or to maybe just uh, illegally gin up voting in particular neighborhoods. Who knew? Uh, but the point is, that is a very real threat. And, and just ensuring that it's you. And, and by the way, the Kansas law is very, very permissive. The Kansas law requires the county to contact you if the signatures don't match. And they have to try at least three times to say, hey, by the way, Tim, uh, it looks like your signature doesn't match. Would you like to come down and sign again? So we, if you know, maybe you scribbled it too quickly or something you want to try again so mm-hmm. we can get a match so the law is really really um protective of the voter uh, they, they don't just throw it out if the signature doesn't match okay. they, they have to take these extra efforts to make to give you a chance to make sure your signature is, is correct um and then the other law uh, another one that i strongly support is the uh, 10 ballot limit on uh, on collecting ballots so harvesting is the, you know it, it prevents people from you know collecting 200 ballots it makes it sound them. nefarious when you say harvesting like well, you're growing ballots or <laughs> So, well, the, you know. the idea is that you're going door to door and you are either paying people for their ballots or you uh, are, you know, and do you think you've ever, ever thought that's true, that people pay people to fill out a ballot? Oh, I think there's no question it's true. It doesn't probably happen in Kansas as much as it happens in places we're like New nice. Jersey. We're, no, just we're just too, too nice. nice. No, yeah. but I, you're right. There, Jersey. No doubt. <laughs> there's there. There is little doubt. I mean, I've, I've talked to election officials when I was secretary of state from from those places and they say oh yeah this happens all the time and anyway uh the the 10 ballot maximum is designed to stop these large-scale schemes where people would you know try to harvest it okay. know, bring 200 ballots in and then dump them uh in the middle of the night in some drop box and so the uh the argument made by the opponents was a really silly one but unfortunately the court bought it and their argument was that it infringes the ballot collector's freedom of speech the guy going door to door saying hey can i deliver your ballot for you it infringes his freedom of speech by limiting him, him to 10. And the thing is, it doesn't. It, it might make his speech a little bit less effective when he's already gotten his 10 and he goes to the 11th door and, and continues to say, hey, I want you to vote. Uh, I can't deliver it for you. you but the idea, that he, the idea that that's a, a free speech violation is, is, is a bit of a stretch. And I think on appeal, we're going to win. Yeah, I was just going to ask about going up to the Kansas Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah. They, the, they're, they're talking about this as a foundation, con- foundational constitutional right if this, of voting and the, so the, forth. So that the, makes maybe your hurdle a little the, higher. The lower court's decision is, I would say, one of the most radical decisions on this topic in the country. I mean, I, I, this is huh. one area where I'm, I'm familiar with what you know, various states and various federal courts have decided. And there's no precedent similar to this that's saying you have a free speech right to deliver more than 10 ballots. Or And this is the first case in the country, I believe, that said that you your your right to vote has been infringed because the county is trying to protect your right to vote by making sure it's your signature. <laughs> oh, the courts and politics are full of irony. So yes. there's another thing that I've noticed that, you know, with some of your predecessors, too, is that pretty common for uh, Attorney General Derek Schmidt did it when he was in office. 
uh, sign amicus briefs on cases from other states and national cases and all sorts of topics. You know, some of them are 10, 15, 20 states are already on the brief and that you sign on to that. Uh, I'm just not sure the just the logistics of that are doing it in your office. Does it require a lot of time for somebody, one of your staff attorneys to do that? Or does it cost very much money? Because it seems like it's already been taken care of by these other 23 states. And like, what difference does it make whether Kansas is involved? Or is there a political constituency out there that expects you to put your name on, on those cases? And they go, yeah, okay. And they pat you on the back saying, yeah, you're, you're, you're holding up the good Kansas standard. Um, I don't know that there's a sizable constituency that's actually watching what amicus briefs from office. Maybe right. <laughs> so, there might be some. You know, there might be a handful of hardcore politicos who are watching every move in there. Uh, you know, yes, there are some people who say, "Hey, I read in such and such very obscure um, online journal that that Kansas joined this amicus brief." That that, that has happened, uh-huh. but I don't think very many people notice. Um, your first question was, "Does it take a lot of office resources?" No. No, it doesn't. Now, writing an amicus brief, if mm-hmm. Kansas were the author of the brief, mm-hmm. yeah, that would. That would take days, you know, maybe weeks of, of an attorney's hours to write a good brief. But um, reading someone, another state's brief and determining that it's le- sound legal reasoning is strong is good. You know, that probably takes an hour or two of total time uh, okay. in the office. And, you know, once the attorneys in our office who have reviewed it have that they would then send out an email to the relevant people in the office saying, OK, we think this is sound for X, Y and Z reasons. We think we recommend that we go ahead and join or we recommend that we don't go ahead and join. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't consume a lot of resources. Yeah, now, also, some of them seem pretty partisan, too. Well, it's interesting. The state attorneys general have become an office that is used in the national lawfare game, legal warfare game, uh-huh. uh, on a whole host of, of federal government actions, right? So when Trump was president, uh, blue state attorneys general joined together and sued the Trump administration on a huge number of things. And that's why you shouldn't be surprised to see with Biden as president if there is a an example of where Biden has done something that the law doesn't or his administration has done something that the law doesn't permit him to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, red states might join together. Uh, and so a perfect example is one where Kansas is uh, we, we just literally yesterday um, filed a lawsuit along with Oklahoma and Texas over the lesser prairie chicken listing as an endangered or threatened. Do you hate species. the prairie chicken? I do not hate the prairie chicken. I actually love uh, going after prairie chickens because the greater prairie chicken is huntable and Okay. In lesser, lesser is the, the lesser is more the one rare in one. Smaller numbers. Yeah. Okay. And the but the thing is about this, it's not about the prairie chicken. The prairie chicken is just a sort of pretext for the bigger issue, which is going after oil and going after beef, because huh. the listing, if it goes through, and we're challenging it, of course, so we're hoping it won't uh, uh-huh. ultimately uh, go into effect and change uh, you know behavior on the ground, is the listing will uh, basically make it impossible to drill new oil wells in western Kansas and in the panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma. And every rancher in Kansas, this only applies to the Kansas regions, will have to file a grazing management plan every year with a federally designated agency saying, you know, I'm going to graze this number of cattle on this pasture. And then at this time, I'm going to move them to that pasture. And they won't, you won't be allowed to deviate from that plan unless you say, mother, may I, to the federal government. This is a huge violation of property rights that you would have to get the federal government's approval before you simply graze your cattle um, on your own land. And so we're suing. And, but the other thing people need to know about this is 
prairie chicken numbers have been fluctuating for centuries. And the number one driver of their population ebbs and flows is rain. Um, there were so so in in the twenty in the first decade of the of the twenty first century in the two thousands there were prairie chicken numbers were in the thirty thousands forty thousand numbers lesser prairie chickens. Then the drought of two thousand eleven came. They dropped to about I think the number was thirteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, Fish and wildlife under the Obama administration said ah oh, we have to list this as a, and and that was fought out in court. End of the day, the listing never went into effect because it was uh, fought in court. But the rain came in 2014, and prairie chicken numbers rebounded to higher than where they were. Now we're back into another drought. Prairie chicken numbers are not as low as they were. They're in the mid-20,000s. I think it's about 25,000. And I am, if, if experience is any guide, as soon as the rains come back, the prairie chicken, num- chicken numbers will rebound. So this fluctuation in population due to rainfall is being used, I believe, as a pretext to go after oil production hmm. and to go after beef production, which are both politically disfavored by this administration. Wow. Okay. Well, we may have to leave it there. We'll have to find out what happens to those little lesser prairie chickens. But <laughs> we, we will know soon enough. Uh, I want to thank you, Mr. Attorney General, for taking the time to talk about through some of these issues. I hope you come back and talk to us. These are all interesting topics, and I think that has wide application for a lot of people uh, around the state. Just to have you explain some of the details of it and what your thinking is. I appreciate so, the questions and appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for coming. My pleasure.